Chapter 1 Watch! Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Matthew 25, 1-13 The passage of Scripture before us is one that deserves the close attention of all professing Christians. We ought to read and listen to it again and again, until we are thoroughly familiar with every sentence it contains. It is a passage that concerns us all, whether ministers or laypeople, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, young or old. It is a passage that can never be known too well. These thirteen verses make up one of the most serious parables that our Lord Christ ever spoke, partly because of the time at which it was spoken, and partly because of the matter which it contains. As to the time, it was but a few days before our Lord's crucifixion. It was spoken within view of Gethsemane and Calvary, of the cross and the grave. As to the matter, it stands as a sign to the church of Christ in all ages. It is a clear witness against carelessness and slothfulness, and against apathy and indifference toward religion. It cries to the thoughtless sinners, Awake! It cries to true servants of Christ, Watch! This parable opens up many trains of thought that I must ignore. I don't sit down to compose a scholarly commentary, but to write a simple, practical address. I will explain two things which otherwise might not be understood, and when I've done that, I will keep to those main truths that are most useful for us to know. The marriage customs of ancient Israel, where the parable was spoken, call for a few words of explanation. Marriages there generally took place in the evening. The bridegroom and his friends came in procession to the bride's house after nightfall. The young women who were the bride's friends were all gathered there waiting for them. As soon as the lamps and torches carried by the bridegroom's party were seen coming in the distance, these young women lighted their lamps and went out to meet them. Then with the bridegroom's party they all returned together to the bride's home. As soon as they arrived there, they entered in, the doors were shut, the marriage ceremony went forward, and no one else was admitted. All these were familiar things to those who heard the Lord Jesus speak, and you too should have them in your mind's eye while you listen to this parable. The figures and emblems used in the parable 
also call for some explanation. I will give you my own view of their meaning. I may be wrong. I freely admit that they are not always interpreted exactly in the same way. But you have a right to hear my opinion, and I will give it to you briefly and decisively. I believe the parable to be a prophecy all the way through. I believe the time spoken of in the parable is the time when Christ will return in person to this world, a time yet to come. The very first word of Matthew 25, the word then, compared with the end of the previous chapter, appears to me to settle that question. I believe the ten virgins carrying lamps represent the whole body of professing Christians, the visible church of Christ. I believe the bridegroom represents our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The wise virgins are the true believers, the real disciples of Christ, the converted part of the visible church. The foolish are Christians in name only, the unconverted, the whole company of those who have no genuine godliness. I believe the lamps are the mere outward profession of Christianity. Those who have been baptized and have not renounced their baptism possess this. The oil which some virgins had with their lamps and others had not is the grace of the Holy Spirit, that anointing of the Holy One, 1 John 2.20, which is the mark of all true Christians. I consider the coming of the bridegroom to mean the second personal coming or advent of the Lord Christ, when He will return in the clouds with glory. I consider the meaning of the wise virgins going into the marriage to be the believer's entrance into his full reward in the day of Christ's appearing. I consider the shutting out of the foolish virgins to mean the exclusion from Christ's kingdom and glory of every person he finds unconverted at his second advent. I offer these short explanations for your attention. I am not going to enter into any unprofitable discussion about them. And without saying another word in the way of preface, I will at once go on to point out the great practical lessons that the parable of the ten virgins teaches. 1. The visible church of Christ will always be a mixed body until Christ comes again. 2. The visible church is always in danger of neglecting the doctrine of Christ's second advent. 3. Whenever Christ does come again, it will be a very sudden event. And four, Christ's second advent will cause an immense change to all the members of the visible church, both good and bad. Let me try to set each of these four truths plainly before you. If I can bring you, by God's help, to see their importance, I believe I will have done you a great service. The visible church of Christ will always be a mixed body until Christ comes again. This is the only meaning I can gather from the beginning of this parable. There I see wise and foolish virgins mingled together in one group, virgins with oil and virgins with no oil, all side by side. And this continues until the very moment the bridegroom appears. I see all this and cannot avoid the conclusion that the visible church will always be a mixed body until Jesus comes again. Its members will never be all unbelievers. Christ will always have His witnesses. Its members will never be all believers. There will always be a vast proportion of formality, unbelief, hypocrisy, and false profession. 
I frankly say that I can find no basis for the common opinion that the visible church will gradually advance to a state of perfection, that it will become better and better and holier and holier up to the very end, and that little by little the whole body will become full of light. I see no justification in Scripture for believing that sin will gradually dwindle away in the earth, that it will melt and disappear by inches like the last snowdrift in spring. Neither do I see grounds for believing that holiness will gradually increase, like the banyan tree of the east, until it blossoms, blooms, and fills the face of the world with fruit. I know that thousands think this way. All I can say is that I cannot see it in God's Word. I fully admit that the gospel sometimes appears to make rapid progress in some countries, but I deny that it ever does more than call out an elect people. It never did more in the days of the apostles. There is not the slightest proof that in any of the cities that Paul visited the whole population became believers. That has never happened in any country from the time of the apostles down to the present day. There never has been a parish or congregation in any part of the world, no matter how blessed its ministry, in which all the people were converted. In any event, I have never read or heard of it, and my belief is that the thing never has happened and never will. I believe that now is the time of election, not of universal conversion. Now is the time for the gathering out of Christ's little flock. The time of general obedience is not yet here. I fully admit that missions are doing a great work among the unsaved, and that schools and clergy are rescuing thousands from the devil at home. I do not undervalue these things. I wish that all professing Christians would value them more. But men appear to forget that the religion of the gospel is often withering in one place while it is flourishing in another. They look at the progress of Christianity in Western Europe, but they forget how fearfully it has lost ground in the East. They point to the little flood tide of Tineveli and Krishnakur. They forget the tremendous ebb in North Africa, Egypt, and Asia Minor. And in the way our world is now, there are no signs that all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. God's work is going forward, as it always has done. The gospel is being preached for a witness in every quarter of the globe. The elect are being brought to Christ one by one and this encourages us to persevere. But nowhere in the world can any missionary report more than this. I long for the conversion of all people as much as anyone, but I believe it is utterly beyond the reach of any tool that man possesses. I quite expect that the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, but I believe that day will be in an entirely new dispensation. It will not be until after the Lord's return. I wouldn't hesitate to preach the gospel and offer Christ's salvation to every man and woman alive, but I am convinced that until the second advent there will always be a vast amount of unbelief and wickedness. The net of the gospel may perhaps be spread far more widely than it has ever been before, but in the last day the angels will find an abundance of bad fish in it as well as good. There may be millions more people working for the gospel and I pray that might be. But however faithfully they may sow, a large proportion of tares will be found growing together with the wheat at the time of harvest. How is it with your own soul? Remember 
until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, there will always be wise and foolish ones in the church. Which are you? The wise are those who have that wisdom which the Holy Spirit alone can give. They know their own sinfulness. They know Christ as their own precious Savior. They know how to walk and please God, and they act upon their knowledge. They look on life as a season of preparation for eternity, not as an end, but as a way, not as a harbor, but as a voyage. They see life not as a home, but as a journey, not as their adulthood, but as their childhood. Those who know these things are happy. The world may despise them, but they are the wise. The foolish are those who are without spiritual knowledge. They do not know God, or Christ, or sin, or their own hearts, or the world, or heaven, or hell, or even the value of their own souls. There is no folly like this. To expect wages after doing no work, prosperity after making no effort, or learning after neglecting books, is utter foolishness. But to expect heaven without faith in Christ, or the kingdom of God without being born again, or the crown of glory without the cross and a holy walk, all this is greater folly still, and yet more common. Sadly, this is the foolishness of the world. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, in the visible church there will always be some who have grace and some who do not. Now, which are you? How is it with your own soul? Some have nothing but the name of Christian. Others have the reality. Some have only the outward profession of religion. Others have the possession also. Some are content if they belong to the church. Others are never content unless they are also united by faith to Christ. Some are satisfied if they have only the baptism of water. Others are never satisfied unless they also feel within the baptism of the Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of atonement. Some stop short with having the outward form of Christianity. Others never rest until they also have the substance. The visible church of Christ is made up of these two groups. It always has been, and it always will be. There are those in the middle who waver and hesitate regarding faith in Christ, but these are seen only by God and are invisible to man. But the whole visible church of Christ is made up of the gracious and the graceless, the wise and the foolish. You yourself are described and written down in this parable. You are either one of the wise virgins or one of the foolish. You either have the oil of grace or you have none. You are either a member of Christ or a child of the devil. You are traveling either toward heaven or toward hell. Never for a moment forget this. This is the point that concerns your soul. Whatever your opinion may be on other points, this is the one that you should never lose sight of. Don't let the devil divert your attention from it. Say to yourself as you listen to this parable, I am spoken of here. The visible church is always in danger of neglecting the doctrine of Christ's second advent. I draw this truth from that solemn verse in the parable, While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. I am quite aware that many good men explain these words in a different way. 
but I dare not call any man master. I need to proclaim what my own conscience tells me is true, and I cannot be bound by the opinions of others. There are such things as erroneous interpretations received by tradition, as well as false doctrines passed down to us, and we need to be on our guard against both. I don't believe that the words, they all slumbered and slept, mean the death of all, though many think so. Such an interpretation is contrary to plain facts. All the professing church will not be sleeping the sleep of death when Jesus comes again. Paul himself says in one place, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15.51 And in another, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 So this interpretation, that all will die, involves a most awkward contradiction of these two plain texts. Neither do I believe that the words were meant to teach us that the whole professing church will get into a slumbering and sleeping state of soul, though many think so. Many would understand this. I will not deny that the love of even the brightest Christian is very cold, and neither their faith nor their works are what they ought to be. All I mean to say is that this is not the truth which appears to me to be taught here. Such a view of the text seems to me to wipe away that broad line of distinction between believers and unbelievers, which, even with all the shortcomings of believers, undoubtedly does exist. Sleep is one of those emblems which the Spirit has chosen to represent the state of the unconverted. Awake thou that sleepest, he says, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5.14 But what does the verse mean? I believe that the words, all slumbered and slept, are to be interpreted with a special regard to the great event on which the whole parable hinges, the second advent of Christ. And I believe our Lord's meaning was simply this, that during the interval between His first and second advent, the whole church, both believers and unbelievers, would view the blessed doctrine of His own personal return to earth with apathy and indifference. In my own judgment, I believe there never was a saying of our Lord's more thoroughly verified by the event. Of all doctrines of the gospel, the one about which Christians have become most unlike the first Christians in their sense of its true value is the doctrine of Christ's second advent. I say this of all denominations of Protestants. I do not know of any exception. In our view of man's corruption, of justification by faith, of our need of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, of the sufficiency of Scripture, Upon these points I believe that today's believers are of much the same mind with the believers in Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, and Rome of former times. But in our view of the second advent of Christ, I fear we would find there was a great difference between us and them if our experience could be compared. I am afraid we would find that we fall woefully short of them in our estimate of its importance that in our system of doctrine it is a very dim and far-off star, while in theirs it was one of the brightest. Compared to them, in this matter, we slumber and sleep. I must speak on this subject, but I do so unwillingly. 
I do so at the risk of offending many whom I love. But I feel it is my duty to speak up. In the matter of Christ's second coming and kingdom, the Church of Christ has not dealt fairly with the prophecies of the Old Testament. For too long we have refused to see that there are two personal advents of Christ spoken of in those prophecies an advent in humiliation and an advent in glory, an advent to suffer and an advent to reign, a personal advent to carry the cross and a personal advent to wear the crown. We have been slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Luke 24:25 emphasis added. The apostles went to one extreme. They stumbled at Christ's sufferings. We have gone to the other. We have stumbled at Christ's glory. We have gotten into the confused habit of speaking of the kingdom of Christ as already set up here among us and have shut our eyes to the fact that the devil is still prince of this world and is served by the vast majority and that our Lord, though like David in Adullam, has been anointed, but not yet set upon His throne. 1 Samuel 22. We have a vicious habit of taking all the promises spiritually and all the denunciations and threats literally. We have been content to take the condemnations against Babylon, Nineveh, Edom, Tyre, Egypt, and the rebellious Jews literally and hand them over to our neighbors. The blessings and promises of glory to Zion, Jerusalem, Jacob, and Israel we have taken spiritually and comfortably applied them to ourselves and the church of Christ. To bring forward proofs of this would be a waste of time. You don't need to listen to many sermons or read many commentaries to be aware that it is a fact. This is an unfair system of interpreting Scripture. I hold that the first and primary sense of every Old Testament promise, as well as each threat, is the literal one, and that Jacob means Jacob, Jerusalem means Jerusalem, Zion means Zion, and Israel means Israel, as much as Egypt means Egypt and Babylon means Babylon. We have lost sight of that primary sense. We have adapted and applied to the church of Christ the promises that were spoken by God to Israel and Zion. I don't mean to say that this accommodation is never allowable, but I do mean to say that the primary sense of every prophecy and promise in Old Testament prophecy was intended to have a literal fulfillment, and that this literal fulfillment has been put aside and thrust into a corner. And by so doing, I think we have exactly fulfilled our Lord's words in the parable of the ten virgins. We have proved that we are slumbering and sleeping about the second advent of Christ. But I also believe that in the interpretation of the New Testament, the Church of Christ has dealt almost as unfairly with our Lord's second advent as she has done in the interpretation of the Old Testament. We have made a habit of putting a strange sense upon many of those passages which speak of the coming of the Son of Man or of the Lord's appearing, and we have submitted too easily to it. Some tell us that the coming of the Son of Man often means death. No one can read the thousands of epitaphs in churchyards in which some text about the coming of Christ is thrust in and not perceive how widespread this view is. Some tell us that our Lord's coming means the destruction of Jerusalem. 
This is a very common way of interpreting the expression. Many find the literal Jerusalem everywhere in New Testament prophecies, though, oddly enough, they refuse to see it in the Old Testament prophecies, and, like Aaron's rod, they make it swallow up every other interpretation. Some tell us that our Lord's coming means the general judgment and the end of all things. This is their one answer to all questions about things to come. Now, I believe that all these interpretations entirely miss the mark. I do not have any desire to underrate the importance of subjects such as death and judgment. I willingly concede that the destruction of Jerusalem is one of many things connected with our Lord's second advent, and is spoken of in chapters where that mighty event is foretold. But my own firm belief is that the coming of Christ is one distinct thing, and that death, judgment, and the destruction of Jerusalem are three other distinct things. And the wide acceptance which these strange interpretations have gained is one more proof that in the matter of Christ's second advent the church has long slumbered and slept. The plain truth of Scripture is this. When the number of the elect is accomplished, Christ will come again to this world with power and great glory. He will raise His saints and gather them to Himself. He will punish severely all who are found to be His enemies, and will gloriously reward all His believing people. He will take to Himself His great power, and will reign and establish a universal kingdom. He will gather the scattered tribes of Israel and place them once more in their own land. As He came the first time, in person, so He will come the second time, in person. As He went away from earth visibly, so He will return visibly. As He literally rode upon a donkey, was literally sold for thirty pieces of silver, had His hands and feet literally pierced, was numbered literally with the transgressors, and had lots literally cast for His garments, all so that Scripture might be fulfilled, so also He will literally come, literally set up a kingdom, and literally reign over the earth, because the very same Scripture has said it will be so. The words of the angels in the first chapter of Acts are plain and unmistakable. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1 11. Similar words are spoken by the Apostle Peter. The times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Acts 3 19 21. And again, by the psalmist and Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. Psalm 102 16. The Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Zechariah 14 5. The Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously. Isaiah 24 23. I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Jeremiah 30 3. 
I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap. Jeremiah 30, 18. Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13-14. All these texts are plain prophecies of Christ's second coming and kingdom. They have yet to be accomplished, but all will be literally and exactly fulfilled. I say literally and exactly fulfilled after great consideration. From the first day that I began to read the Bible with my heart, I have never been able to see these texts and hundreds like them in any other light. It always seemed to me that as we take literally the texts foretelling that the walls of Babylon will be cast down, so we ought to take literally the texts foretelling that the walls of Zion will be built up. If, according to prophecy, the Jews were literally scattered, so according to prophecy the Jews will be literally gathered. And that as the least and minutest predictions were made good on the subject of our Lord's coming to suffer, so the minutest predictions will be made good which describe our Lord's coming to reign. One of the greatest shortcomings of the Church of Christ is that we ministers do not preach enough about this advent of Christ and that lay people do not think enough about it. A few of us, here and there, profess to love the doctrine, but the number of such persons is relatively small, and none of us live on it, feed on it, act on it, work from it, or take comfort in it as much as God intended us to. In short, the bridegroom tarries, and we all slumber and sleep. This doctrine of Christ's second coming and kingdom is not any less true just because it has sometimes been abused. All doctrines of the gospel have been misused and misapplied. Salvation by grace has been made a pretext for licentiousness, election an excuse for all manner of unclean living, and justification by faith a warrant for antinomianism. But we are not obliged to throw away good principles because men draw the wrong conclusions from them. We do not give up the gospel because of the outrageous conduct of the Anabaptists of Munster, or the extravagant assertions of Saltmarsh and William Huntington, or the strange proceedings of jumpers and shakers. And it is not fair to tell us that we ought to reject the second advent of Christ because there were fifth monarchy men in the days of the Commonwealth and Irvingites and Millerites in our own time. Men must be hard-pressed for an argument when they have no better reasons than these. Those who hold the doctrine of the second coming of Christ differ among themselves on many points of prophecy, but that does nothing to diminish the doctrine. Those who remember that unity on great points is perfectly consistent with disagreement on small ones will not stumble. Luther and Swingley differed widely in their views of the Lord's Supper. Yet who would think of saying that therefore Protestantism is all false? Fletcher and Toplady were both clergymen in the Church of England, but differed widely about Calvinism. 
But what would be the sense of saying that all evangelical religion was therefore untrue? To be fair, people ought to remember this when they talk of the differences among those who study prophecy. It is possible to greatly disagree on the meaning of the symbols in the book of Revelation, yet agree entirely and substantially on the matter of Christ's coming and kingdom. I concede that the doctrine contains many difficulties, but that proves nothing against it. The order of events connected with our Lord's coming and the manner of His kingdom when it is set up are both deep subjects and hard to understand. But I believe there are twice as many difficulties connected with any other system of interpreting unfulfilled prophecy. I also believe that there are twice as many difficulties connected with our Lord's first coming as those connected with His second, and that it was a far more improbable thing. It is a priori more reasonable that the Son of God should come to suffer than it is that He should come to reign. And after all, it doesn't concern us as to how and in what manner prophecies are to be fulfilled. Is our miserable understanding of what is possible to be the measure and limit of God's actions? The only question for us is, has God said it? If He has, then we should not doubt it will be done. I can only give my own individual testimony, but the little I know experimentally of the doctrine of Christ's second coming convinces me to regard it as most practical and precious, and makes me long to see others regard it the same way. I find it a powerful spring and stimulus to holy living, a motive for patience, for moderation, for spiritual mindedness, a test for how I use my time and a gauge for all my actions. Would I want my Lord to find me in this place doing what I am doing? I also find it to be the strongest argument for missionary work. The time is short. The Lord is at hand. The gathering out from all nations will soon be accomplished. The heralds and forerunners of the King will soon have proclaimed the gospel in every nation. The night is almost gone. The King will soon be here. It is the best answer to the infidel. He sneers at our churches and chapels, at our sermons and services, at our tracts and our schools. He points to the millions who still care nothing for Christianity, even after eighteen hundred years of preaching. He asks me how I can account for this if Christianity is true. I answer that it was never said that all the world would believe and serve Christ under the present dispensation. I tell him that the things he ridicules were predicted, and the number of true Christians was expected to be few. But I tell him that Christ's kingdom has not yet come, and even though we still have not seen all things put under him, one day we will. I find it to be the best reasoning to use with a Jew. If I do not take all the prophecy of Isaiah literally, I don't know how I can persuade him that the fifty-third chapter is fulfilled literally. But if I do, I have an argument which I know he cannot shake. How men can expect Jews to see in Old Testament prophecies a Messiah coming to suffer, if they do not themselves see in them a Messiah coming to reign, is past my understanding. And now, is there any one of you who cannot accept the doctrine of Christ's second advent and kingdom? I invite you to consider the subject calmly and impartially. Dismiss from your mind traditional interpretations. 
separate the doctrine from the mistakes and blunders of many who hold it. Do not reject the foundation because of the wood, hay, and stubble which some have built upon it. Do not condemn it and cast it aside because of misguided friends. Examine the texts which speak of it as calmly and fairly as you weigh texts in other controversies, and I am hopeful of the result. If texts of Scripture were always treated as unceremoniously as I have known texts to be treated by those who dislike the doctrine of Christ's second advent, I would tremble for the cause of truth. Is there any one of you who agrees with the principles I have tried to advocate? I beg you to make real the second coming of Christ more and more. We feel it but very little compared to what we ought to. Be gentle in argument with those that differ from you. Remember that a man may be mistaken on this subject, but yet be a holy child of God. It is not the slumbering on this subject that ruins souls, but the lack of grace. Above all, avoid dogmatism and overconfidence, especially when dealing with symbolic prophecy. It is a sad truth, but a truth never to be forgotten, that none have injured the doctrine of the second coming more than its overzealous friends. Whenever Christ does come again, it will be a very sudden event. This truth comes from the verse in the parable that says, At midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. I don't know when Christ will come again. It would be presumptuous if I said that I did. I am no prophet, though I love the subject of prophecy. I dislike setting dates and naming years, and I believe it has done great harm. I only state confidently that Christ will one day come again to set up his kingdom on earth, and that whether the day be near or whether it be far, it will take the church and the world by exceeding surprise. It will come on men suddenly. It will break on the world all at once. It will not have been talked over, prepared for, and looked forward to by everyone. It will awaken minds like the cry of fire at midnight. It will startle hearts like a trumpet blown at bedside during a dead sleep. Like Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, they will know nothing until the very waters are upon them. Like Dathan, Abiram, and their followers when the earth opened under them, the moment they hear the report of Christ's coming will be the same moment they see it with their eyes. Numbers 16. Before they can recover their breath and know where they are, they will find that the Lord has come. I suspect there is a vague notion floating in our minds that the present order of things will not end quite so suddenly. I suspect some cling to the idea that there will be a kind of Saturday night in the world, a time when all will know the day of the Lord is near, that there will be a time when all will be able to cleanse their consciences, look for and find their wedding garments, shake off their earthly business, and prepare to meet their God. If anyone has this thought, I command you to give it up forever. If anything is clear in unfulfilled prophecy, this one fact seems clear. The Lord's coming will be sudden and will take men by surprise. Any view of prophecy which destroys the possibility of its being sudden, either by introducing many events that still need to take place, or by placing the millennium between ourselves and the advent, 
any such view appears to me to carry a fatal defect. Everything that is written in Scripture on this point confirms the truth that Christ's second coming will be sudden. As a snare shall it come, says one place, Luke 21, 35. As a thief in the night, says another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. A third says it will come as the lightning, Luke 17, 24. And a fourth and fifth tell us when, in such an hour as ye think not, Matthew 24, 44, and when they shall say, Peace and safety. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself uses two most striking comparisons when speaking on this subject. Both are instructive and ought to raise in us serious thoughts. In the first, He compares His coming to the days of Lot. When Lot fled from Sodom, the men of Sodom were buying and selling, eating and drinking, planting and building. They thought of nothing but earthly things. They were entirely absorbed in them and despised Lot's warning. They mocked his advice. The sun rose on the earth as usual. Things were going on as they had for hundreds of years. They saw no sign of danger. But notice what our Lord says. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Luke 17, 29-30. In the other passage I refer to, our Lord compares His coming to the days of Noah. Do you remember how it was in Noah's day? Let me remind you. Before the flood came on the earth, in Noah's time, there was no visible sign of anything so awful being near. The days and nights were following each other in regular succession. The grass and trees and crops were growing as usual. The business of the world was going on. And though Noah preached continually of coming danger and warned men to repent, no one believed what he said. But at last, one day, the rain began and did not cease. The waters rose and did not stop. The flood came and swelled and went on and covered one thing after another. All were drowned who were not in the ark. Listen to what our Lord says. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 26-27. The flood took the world by surprise, and so will the coming of the Son of Man. In the middle of the world's business, when things are going on as usual, is when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. The suddenness of the Lord's second advent is a truth that should prompt all Christians to search their hearts. It should lead them to seriously think about both themselves and the world. Think for a moment how little the world is prepared for such an event. Look at the towns and cities of the earth, and notice how most people are entirely absorbed in the things of this life and consumed with their careers. Banks, shops, politics, law, medicine, commerce, transportation, banquets, balls, theatres. Each and all are consuming the hearts and souls of thousands and thrusting out the things of God. 
Think what a fearful shock will come in the day of Christ's appearing with the sudden stoppage of all these things. If just one corporation declares bankruptcy now, it makes a great sensation. What then will be the crash when the whole machine of worldly affairs stands still at once? From counting money and making plans, from racing after riches and arguing about trifles, to be hurried away to meet the King of Kings, how tremendous the change! To go from dancing and dressing, from going to concerts and reading novels, to being summoned away by the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God! How awful the transition! Remember, one day all this will be. Think about the rural parishes in such a land as ours. Look how most of their residents are immersed in farms and allotments, in cattle and corn, in rent and wages, in rates and tithes, in digging and sowing, in buying and selling, in planting and building. See how many there are who evidently care for nothing and feel nothing except the things of this world, who do not pay any attention to whether their minister preaches law or gospel. Christ or Antichrist, and who would be utterly unconcerned if the Archbishop of Canterbury were turned out of Lambeth Palace and the Pope of Rome put in his place. See how many there are of whom it can only be said that their bellies and their pockets are their gods. And then imagine the awful effect of a sudden call to meet the Lord Christ, a call to a day of reckoning in which the price of wheat and the rate of wages will be nothing and the Bible will be the only rule of trial. And remember, one day all this will be. Picture these things—your house, your family, your fireside. What will be found there? Picture above all your own feelings your own state of mind. And then remember that this is the end towards which the world is rushing. There will be no warning far in advance. This is the way in which the world's affairs will be brought to an end. This is an event which may happen in your own time, and you cannot conclude that the second coming of Christ is mere curious speculation. It is an event of enormous practical importance. But I can imagine someone saying, This is all foolishness and raving nonsense. This writer is a fanatic. He's out of his mind. What is the likelihood, the probability of all this? The world is going on as it always did. It's not going to end in my lifetime. Do not say this. Do not ignore the subject by talking like this. This is the way men talked in the days of Noah and Lot. But what happened? They found to their loss that Noah and Lot were right. Do not say so. The Apostle Peter foretold eighteen hundred years ago that men would talk this way. Scripture? There shall come in the last days scoffers, he tells us, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 2 Peter 3 3 4. Oh, do not fulfill his prophecy by your unbelief. Where is the madness and fanaticism of the things which I have been saying? Show it to me if you can. I calmly assert, that the present order of things will come to an end one day. Will anyone deny that? Will anyone tell me we will go on forever as we do now? 
I calmly say that Christ's second coming will be the end of our normal way of life. I have said so because the Bible says it. I have calmly said that Christ's second coming will be a sudden event, whenever it may be, and may possibly be in our own time. I have said so because that's the way I find it written in the Word of God. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. You must remember one thing. You are finding fault with the Bible, not with me. Christ's second coming will cause an immense change to all members of the visible church, both good and bad. I draw this truth from the concluding portion of the parable, from the discovery of the foolish virgins that their lamps had gone out, from their anxious plea to the wise, Give us of your oil, from their vain knocking at the door when too late, crying, Lord, Lord, open to us, from the happy admission of the wise who were found ready in company with the bridegroom. These points are full of food for thought, but I have neither the time nor space to dwell upon each one particularly. I can only take a broad view. To all who have been baptized in the name of Christ, converted or unconverted, believers or unbelievers, holy or unholy, godly or ungodly, wise or foolish, gracious or graceless, to all, the second advent of Christ will be an immense change. To the ungodly, to those who are Christian in name only, it will be an immense change to both their opinions and position. When Christ comes again, all of these people will see the value of real spiritual religion if they never saw it before. They will do, in effect, what the parable illustrates. They will cry to the godly, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. We all know that in the present world, spiritual religion never brings the world's praise. It never has in the past, and it never does now. It brings instead the world's disapproval, the world's persecution, the world's mockery, the world's opposition, the world's ridicule, the world's sneers. The world will let a man serve the devil and quietly go to hell. No one lifts a finger to stop him, or even says, May God have mercy on your soul. But the world will never let a man serve Christ and go to heaven quietly. Everybody cries, Stop, wait, and does anything and everything to keep him back. Those who follow Christ and try to be saved are often belittled with nicknames Pietists, Puritans, Methodists, Fanatics, Enthusiasts, Calvinists, Ultra religionists, the saints, the righteous overmuch, the very good people, and many more. We know the petty family persecutions that often go on in private society in our day. Let young people go to every party and social event. But utterly neglect their souls, and no one interferes. No one says, Save yourselves. No one says, Be careful, remember God, judgment, and eternity. But let them start to read their Bibles and be diligent in prayer. Let them avoid worldly amusements and use their time wisely. Let them seek an evangelical ministry and live like an immortal being. Let them do this, I say and all their friends and relatives will be up in arms. You're going too far. You're being extreme. Live a little. This, in all probability, is the very least that such people will hear. If a young woman, 
she will be labelled and avoided by all her peers. If a young man, he will be marked by all who know him as weak, silly, and rigid. In short, such people will soon discover that there is no help from the world on the way to heaven, but plenty of help on the way to hell. I wish it were not so, but it is. These are ancient things. As it was in the days of Cain and Abel, as it was in the days of Isaac and Ishmael, so it is now. Scripture, He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so it is now. Galatians 4.29. The cross of Christ will always bring reproach with it. As the Jews hated Christ, so the world hates Christians. As the head was bruised, so also will be the members. As contempt was poured on the Master, so it will be poured on the disciples. In short, if you desire to become a decided evangelical Christian, you must count the cost and make up your mind to lose the world's favor. In a word, you must be content to be thought by many as little better than a fool. There will be an end of all this when Christ returns to this world. The light of that day will at last show everything in its true colors. The scales will fall from the eyes of those who have been blinded by the pleasures of this world. The value of the soul will flash on their astonished minds. The utter uselessness of a mere nominal Christianity will burst upon them like a thunderstorm. The blessedness of regeneration, faith in Christ, and a holy walk will shine before them like mene, mene, tekel, peres, on the wall of the Babylonian palace. The veils will fall from their faces. They will discover that it has been the godly that have been the wise, and that they have played the fool. And just as Saul wanted Samuel when it was too late, and Belshazzar sent for Daniel when the kingdom was about to be taken from him, so will the ungodly turn to the very men they once mocked and despised, and cry to them, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But as there will be a complete change in the opinions of the ungodly in the day of Christ's second advent, so there will also be a complete change in their position. Vain hope, the plank to which they now cling, and on which they depend to the very end, will be entirely taken away in that awful day. They will seek salvation with earnestness, but will not be able to find it. They will run here and there in a vain search for the oil of grace. They will knock loudly at the door of mercy and get no answer. They will cry, Lord, Lord, open to us, but it will be of no use. They will discover to their sorrow that opportunities once passed can never be regained, and that the notion of universal mercy is a mere delusion of the devil. Thousands are urged to pray and repent now, but they never attempt it. They mean to, one day perhaps. Like Felix, they hope for a convenient time. Acts 24:25. They imagine it will never be too late to seek the Lord. But there is a time coming when prayer will be heard no longer, and repentance will be ineffective. There is a time when the door by which Manasseh and Saul the persecutor entered will be shut and opened no more. There is a time when the fountain in which Mary Magdalene, John Newton, and thousands of others were washed and made clean will be sealed forever. There is a time when men will know the folly of sin, 
but, like Judas, it will be too late for repentance, when they will desire to enter the promised land, but like Israel at Kadesh, Numbers 14, they will not be able to, when they will see the value of God's favor and covenant blessing, but, like Esau, they can no longer possess it, when they will believe every jot and tittle of God's revealed word, but like the miserable devils, they will only tremble. Yes, many will come to this in the day of Christ's appearing. They will ask and not receive. They will seek and not find. They will knock and the door will not be opened to them. Sadly, this is how it will be. Woe to those who put off seeking manna until the Lord's day of return. Like Israel of old, they will find none. Woe to those who go to buy oil when they ought to be burning it. Like the foolish virgins, they will find themselves shut out from the marriage supper of the Lamb. O professing Christians, consider these things. Remember that the words of our Lord have yet to be fulfilled. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer, and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Luke 13, 25-27. But as Christ's second coming will be a mighty change to the ungodly, so it will also be a mighty change to the godly. They will at last be freed from everything which now spoils their comfort. The door will be shut against the fiery darts of Satan, against the hated weakness of the flesh which now clings to them, against the unkind world which now misrepresents and misunderstands them, against the doubts and fears which now so often darken their path, against the weariness which now obstructs their best efforts to serve the Lord, against coldness and deadness, against shortcomings and backsliding. Against all these the door will be shut forever. Not one single Canaanite will be found in the land. They will no longer be frustrated by temptation, persecuted by the world, warred against by the devil. Their conflict will be over. Their strife with the flesh will cease forever. The armor of God, which they have worn so long, will at last be laid aside. They will be where there is no Satan, no sorrow, and no sin. Oh, the second Eden will be far better than the first. In the first Eden the door was not shut, our joy was just for a moment. But, blessed be God, in the second Eden the Lord will shut us in. And as the godly will enjoy freedom from all evil in the day of Christ's appearing, so they will also enjoy the presence of all good. They will go in with the bridegroom to the marriage. They will be forever in the company of Christ and go out no more. Faith will then be swallowed up in sight. Hope will become certainty. Knowledge will at last be perfect. Prayer will be turned into praise. Desires will be attained. Hunger and thirst after conformity to Christ's image will be satisfied. The thought of parting will not spoil the pleasure of meeting. The company of fellow saints will be enjoyed without hurry and distraction. The family of Abraham will no longer feel temptations, and the family of Job will not feel afflictions. 
The family of David will no longer mourn loss and death. The family of Paul will not feel thorns in the flesh. And the family of Lazarus will no longer be afflicted by poverty and sores. Every tear will be wiped away in that day. It is the time when the Lord will say, I make all things new. Oh, if God's children find joy and peace in believing now, how will their tongues express their feelings when they see the King in His beauty? If the report of the far-off land has been sweet to them here in the wilderness, what pen will describe their happiness when they see it with their own eyes? If it has cheered them now and then to meet two or three like-minded people in this evil world, how their hearts will burn within them when they see a multitude of true believers so large that it cannot be counted, each washed clean of all sin and defects. If the narrow way has been pleasant to the scattered few who have travelled it with their weak and frail bodies, how precious will their rest seem in the day when they are gathered together with glorious bodies like their Lord's! Then we will understand the meaning of the text, In thy presence is fullness of joy, at thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore. Psalm 16, 11. Then we will experience the truth of that beautiful hymn that says, Let me be with thee where thou art, my Saviour, my eternal rest. Then only will this longing heart be fully and forever blessed. Let me be with thee where thou art, thy unveiled glory to behold. Then only will this wandering heart cease to be faithless, treacherous, cold. Let me be with thee where thou art, where none can die, where none remove, where life nor death my soul can part from thy blessed presence and thy love. Do any of you ever laugh at true religion? Do you persecute and ridicule godliness in others, or dare to talk of people being too particular and too righteous? Beware of what you are doing. Be careful. You may live to think very differently. You may live to alter your opinion, but it will perhaps be too late. There is a day coming when there will be no unbelievers. Not one. There is a day when the disciples of Payne and Voltaire and Emerson will call on the rocks to fall on them, and on the hills to cover them. Before the throne of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the Lord. Remember that day, and beware. Do any of you, dear children of God, who are mocked and despised for the sake of the gospel, feel as if you stand alone? Take comfort. Be patient. Wait a little longer. Your turn will come. When the spies returned from searching out Canaan, men talked of stoning Caleb and Joshua, because they brought a good report of the land. But after a few days all the assembly confessed that they alone had been right. Strive to be like them. Follow the Lord fully as they did, and sooner or later all men will confess that you did well. Never, never be afraid of going too far. Never, never be afraid of being too holy. Never, never be ashamed of desiring to go to heaven and seeking to have a great crown. Millions will lament in the day of Christ's return that they do not have enough religion. Not one will be heard to say that he has too much. Take comfort. Press on.
And now I will close with three words of application that seem to naturally arise out of this parable. I wholeheartedly pray that God will make these words timely and bless them to your soul. My first word of application is a question. I take the parable of the ten virgins as my authorization, and I address that question to every one of you. I ask, Are you ready? Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, They that were ready went in with the bridegroom to the marriage. They that were ready, and no one else. Here, in the sight of God, I ask you, Are you ready? I don't ask if you go to church or profess to be religious. I don't ask if you attend an evangelical ministry like evangelical people, can talk of evangelical subjects, and read evangelical tracts and books. All this is just the surface of Christianity. This costs little and may be easily attained. I want to search your heart more thoroughly and probe your conscience more deeply. I want to know if you have been born again and if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your soul. I want to know if you have brought extra oil while you carry the lamp of profession, and if you are ready to meet the bridegroom, ready for Christ's return to the earth. I want to know if the Lord should come this week, could you lift up your head with joy and say, This is our God, we have waited for Him, we will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. These things I want to know, and this is what I mean when I say, Are you ready? But I can imagine some saying, This is asking far too much, to be ready for Christ's appearing. This is far too high a standard. This is extravagance. It would be impossible to live in the world at this rate. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? I can't help it. I believe this is the standard of the Bible. I believe this is the standard Paul sets before us when he says the Thessalonians were waiting for God's Son from heaven and the Corinthians were waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Corinthians 1.7. And surely this is the standard Peter sets before us when he speaks of looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. 2 Peter 3.12. I believe it is a mark that every true believer should be continually aiming at to live so as to always be ready to meet Christ. God forbid that I should place the standard of Christian practice a hair's width higher than the level at which the Bible places it, but God forbid that I should ever put it even a hair's width lower. If I do, what right do I have to say that the Bible is my rule of faith? I do not want to disqualify anyone for usefulness here on earth. You don't need to become a hermit and stop serving your generation. I don't ask you to leave your job or career and neglect your earthly affairs, but I do call on everyone to live like one who expects Christ to return, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I ask you to live like pilgrims and strangers, ever looking to Jesus, to live like good servants, prepared for action and with your lamp burning to live like one whose treasure is in heaven, with your heart packed up and ready to leave. This is readiness. This is preparation. Is this too much to ask? I say unhesitatingly that it is not. Are you ready in this way? If not, 
I want to know what good your religion does you. What is it all but a pointless burden, a show? What is it but a mere temporary cloak that will not be worn beyond this world? Truly, a religion that does not make you ready for everything, for death, for judgment, for the second advent, for the resurrection, should be looked on with suspicion. If your religion does not make you ready for anything, the sooner it is changed, the better. My second word of application will be an invitation. I address it to all who feel in their conscience that they have no grace in their hearts, to all who feel that the character of the foolish virgins is their own. To every such person I invite you this day, in my Master's name, to awake and flee to Christ. If this is how you feel, you know that all that is within you is wrong in the sight of God. Nothing is truer about you than that you are asleep, not merely about the doctrine of Christ's second advent, but also about everything that concerns your soul. You are wide awake, perhaps, about worldly things. You keep up with current events and read the news. You have your head stored with earthly wisdom and useful knowledge. But you have no heartfelt sense of sin, no peace or friendship with God, no fellowship with Christ, no delight in the Bible and prayer. And you are a sinner, a dying sinner, an immortal sinner, a sinner going to meet Christ, a sinner going to be judged. Honestly, what is this but being asleep? How long will this go on? When do you plan to arise and live as if you had a soul? When will you cease to hear as one who hears not? When will you give up running after shadows and seek something substantial? When will you throw off the mockery of a religion which cannot satisfy, cannot comfort, cannot sanctify, cannot save, and will not stand up to examination? When will you give up having a faith which does not influence your practice, having a book which you say is God's word but treating it as if it were not, having the name of Christian but knowing nothing of Christ? Oh, when will it end? Why not this very year? Why not this very day? Why not at once awake and call upon your God and resolve that you will sleep no longer? I set before you an open door. I set before you Jesus Christ the Saviour who died to make atonement for sinners, Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost, Jesus who is willing to receive. The hand that was nailed to the cross is held out to you in mercy. The eye that wept over Jerusalem is looking on you with pity. The voice that has said to many wanderers, Your sins are forgiven, is saying to you, Come to me. If you want to know what steps to take, go to Jesus first. Don't wait for repentance and faith and a new heart, but go to Him just as you are. Go to Him in prayer and cry, Lord, save me, or I will die. I am tired of sleeping. I don't want to sleep any longer. Awake, you sleeper, and Christ will give you light. The sun, moon, and stars all witness against you. They continue according to God's ordinances, but you are always violating God's laws. The grass, the birds, the very worms of the earth are all witnessing against you. They fill their place in creation, but you do not. The Sabbath and the law are continually witnessing against you. They proclaim there is a God and a judgment, but you live as if there were none. 
The tears and prayers of godly relatives are witnessing against you. Others are sorrowfully thinking you have a soul, though you seem to forget it. The very gravestones that you see every week are witnessing against you. They are silently witnessing that life is uncertain, time is short, the resurrection is yet to come, and the Lord is at hand. All are saying, Awake, awake, awake. You have slept long enough. Awake to be wise, awake to be safe, awake to be happy, awake and sleep no more. My last word of application will be an exhortation to all true believers, to all who have grace in their hearts and have been pardoned by the blood of the Lamb. I take it from the words of the Lord Jesus at the end of the parable. I exhort you earnestly to watch. I encourage you to watch against everything which might interfere with the readiness for Christ's appearing. Search your own hearts. Find out the things which most frequently interrupt your communion with Christ. Recognize and mark these things, and always be on your guard against them. Watch against sin of every kind. Do not think, Ah, I would never do that. There is no sin too abominable for the very best of us to commit. Remember David and Uriah, 2 Samuel 11. The spirit may be sometimes very willing, but the flesh is always very weak. You are still in the body. Watch and pray. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, watch against doubts and unbelief regarding your salvation. The Lord Jesus finished the work He came to do. Don't tell Him that He did not. The Lord Jesus paid your debts in full. Don't tell him that you think he left you some to pay. The Lord Jesus promises eternal life to every sinner that comes to him. Don't tell him as you are coming that you think he lies. Oh, our unbelief! In Christ you are like Noah in the ark, and Lot in Zoar. Nothing can harm you. The earth may be burned up with fire at the Lord's appearing, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. Do not doubt. Pray for more faith. Watch and pray. Watch against an inconsistent walk and conformity to the world. Watch against sins of your temper and your tongue. These are the kinds of things that grieve the Spirit of God and make His witness within us muted and weak. Watch and pray. Watch against false doctrine. Remember that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. Counterfeit money is never marked counterfeit, or else it would never be passed. Guard jealously the whole truth as it is in Jesus. Don't put up with a grain of error for the sake of a pound of truth. Don't tolerate a little false doctrine one bit more than you would tolerate a little sin. Oh, remember this caution. Watch and pray. Watch against apathy toward the Bible and prayer. There's nothing so spiritual that it cannot be turned into just a form, an outward show. Most backsliding begins privately. When a tree is snapped in two by a high wind, we usually find there has been some long hidden decay. Oh, watch and pray. Watch against bitterness and unkindness toward others. A little love is more valuable than many gifts. Look for the good in others with eyes like an eagle's, but see their evil with the weak eyes of a mole. 
Let your memory be a safe for their virtues, but a sieve for their faults. Watch and pray. Watch against vanity and pride. Peter insisted that even if he had to die with Jesus, he would never deny him. And he soon fell. Pride is the high road to a fall. Watch and pray. Watch against the sins of Galatia, Ephesus, and Laodicea. Believers may run well for a while, but then lose their first love and become lukewarm. Watch and pray. Watch against the sin of Jehu. Jehu may have appeared to have great zeal in his quest for vengeance, but yet he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. 2 Kings 9-10. It is much easier to oppose Antichrist than to follow Christ. It's one thing to protest against error. It is quite another thing to love the truth. So watch and pray. Oh, let us all watch more than we have done. Let us watch more every year that we live. Let us watch that we may not be startled when the Lord appears. Let us watch for the world's sake. For the most part, we are the books they read. They notice our ways far more than we think. Let us aim to be clearly written and understood letters of Christ. Let us watch for our own sakes. As our walk is consistent and pure, so will be our peace. As we conform to Christ's mind, so will our sense of Christ's atoning blood grow. If a man will not walk in the full light of the sun, how can he expect to be warm? Above all, let us watch for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Let us live as if His glory were affected by our behavior. Let us live as if every slip and fall was a reflection on the honor of our King. Let us live as if every sin we allowed was one more thorn in His head, one more nail in His feet, one more spear in His side. Let us make use of a godly jealousy over thoughts, words, and actions, over motives, manners, and walk. Never fear being too strict. Never let us think we can watch too much. Few believers were more useful in their day and generation than Leg Richmond. His dying words were very solemn. Of him it can be truly said that even though he is dead, he still speaks. Hebrews 11.4. What did he say while he lay dying? Brother, brother, we are none of us more than half awake.